Trigger warning, this reading contains stories of physical and emotional abuse towards adults and children. And this is a story about abuse, motherhood, and learning to break free. This is not my story. This is a story I'll tell in my mother's words. My mom, lovingly nicknamed Bibi, died in 2008 in a head-on collision. She was 55, and I, then 21 and now 34, was very close to her. And her death was beyond tragic to me. There was a long cycle of grief and trauma in the events following her death, and I still spend so many days wishing I could speak to her. I dream of her often, but unfortunately, they're mostly nightmares in which I have spent time in therapy and acupuncture looking for relief. But as I get older, I find myself with more and more questions. Questions about who my mother really was, how she acted when she was a kid, what her habits were, and if I remind her of herself. Questions I will obviously not be able to ask her. And I see that as the distance that's inevitable after a loved one's death grows deeper, my mother had a whole damn life before I was born. And I yearn to learn more about that woman. My mother was an educator and she had a PhD in psychotherapy from St. Mary's University in San Antonio. She had worked as a principal in a refugee school and as a homebound teacher for students who were too ill to attend school for about 20 years. She also volunteered and did advocacy work for women experiencing domestic abuse. Her real name was Warina. My friends called her Miss Bibi, and I called her Sita. Some things I do know about my mother's life before me was that she was engaged to a young man named Herb. He was a nurse in the Vietnam War, and I think he was her first love, and I have some very intense letters from him that she had kept. They were stored away in a box in her closet, and after her death, I took them for safekeeping. I can only imagine the sorrow she felt when, at 20 years old, my mother's fiancé was killed in the war and never returned. I have no actual recollection of her telling me stories about him, but I did find her box of letters when I was probably about 10, and she let me read some, but I was sobbing after the first one, and I put them away. Another thing I know is that she married a man named Marty in Louisiana. She told me she worked in a health food co-op while she lived there, and she worked in the vitamin section mostly. Her and I fought a lot when I became an angsty vegan at 17, and she would tell me stories of how she was vegetarian for 10 years until she met my father, which is kind of where the story I am going to tell begins. But let me first finish by saying my mother had two kids with her first husband, my older brother and sister, but she divorced him when my brother was two months old and my sister was three. She came back to Texas as a single mother and took her future into her own hands. For perspective, the words I'm about to read specifically are about my mother's relationship with my father, her second husband. And these words are technically part of my mother's drafts for her dissertation in order to receive her PhD in psychotherapy. 
Although her actual dissertation contains none of her own experiences and is purely data-driven, I look back at how therapeutic it must have been for her to write her own story to frame the outline of how her research on domestic abuse should be written. I can still see her in my head spending hours laying out in the sunshine by our pool writing in these composition books. But it wasn't until I was desperately looking for her will the week after she had died that I found these handwritten notebooks. And a year later, I took them on a plane ride to Los Angeles and I ordered mini bottles of champagne and kind of had no idea what I was getting myself into by reading them. Uh, I laughed and I cried while reading these and I learned a lot about my childhood. And towards the end, I actually drunkenly wrote a final note in her last notebook on that plane ride. My mother's story is important, as it is obviously the story of so many women caught in abusive relationships. And I'm not really sure where to start, as her story in these notebooks kind of bounces around as natural thoughts tend to do. So here we go. Here's a story of abuse told in my mother's words. not the same me that I used to be, and I'm not sure that I'll ever get my former spirit back, my esprit. Sidebar, that's a fashion joke. As I used to say, I used to have enough to share with everyone around me and still have plenty left, which is amazing to think about because I eventually became quote-unquote used up. I remember saying I'm worn out and used up. That was when I died. My spirit died. I died to myself. It's so sad to think about. What's even sadder is that there are millions of women going through this same experience even as I write these memories. Women dying into themselves. It's not a quick death either. It's a slow and painful one, very painful. Practicing psychotherapy does not inoculate one from excruciating pain of experiencing the death of one's own spirit. Sometimes I feel as if my spirit was siphoned out of me so slowly, so painfully that I didn't even know what was happening to me. The pain distracted me from the process of dying. If this all sounds pretty strange and confusing, try experiencing it. To me, I can see it clearly now. It's like looking back at another person, observing someone from afar. Yet this doesn't begin to touch upon the intensity of the detachment that I felt back then. As of this writing, my divorce was final only five months ago, after a very frightening and arduous divorce war. I say war because the word fits well. My partner had worked for lawyers on and off since just before we were married, some 10 years prior. An association that equipped him with free legal advice, insight, and maneuvers that were less than moral and ethical. I now have an ex parte protective order in place, and I go to court again in five days to have a renewed protective order in place for another full year. I must say that I've learned immensely about the legal system, human nature, and the fragility of the human spirit through all of this deadly war. 
The bottom line is that my children and I have survived. We've lived in the trenches and we've come out alive. And I feel that each of us is getting stronger and more self-confident with each day that passes. As I look back, even knowing all that I now know, it's hard to imagine that I put up with all that I did. It's a humiliating experience, really. Dehumanizing, almost dispiriting, specifically verbal abuse, which I equate as emotional abuse, wounds that are so deep, it hits to the very core of you. It wounds you, who you are, and a wounded self is not a strong self. As with the physical wounds that we can see, each blow further weakens the body. Psychological or emotional blows, verbal blows, if you will, weaken the spirit. If physical abuse is a battering of the body, verbal abuse is the battering of the spirit. As the body will die with repeated physical abuse, the spirit will die with repeated verbal and psychological emotional blows. It's more difficult to be rescued from verbal blows. The law does not protect you from non-physical abuse. The law always requires proof of abuse. And where is the tangible proof of psychological abuse? The law does consider verbal threats a crime, a Class C misdemeanor if it was done in public, with the testimony and sworn affidavits of two or more witnesses. However, in verbally or emotionally abusive relationships, there are no witnesses. The perpetrator sees to that. In public, he is on. Wonderful, Mr. Nice Guy, whom everybody loves. You are the one who receives all his wrath, all his anger, past and present are targeted towards you. No one else. Unless the children become involved, which they usually do, although you may not know it at the time. I found out a lot that went on in my absence many years after the incidents when my children felt safe enough to share. I knew some emotional abuse went on. I witnessed it. And I intervened when I did. But if you are being verbally, emotionally abused, you can be pretty sure that your kids are too as it's his personality to privately abuse, to draw blood in the presence of only his victims. It's okay that no one witnessed his, his victory. Remember, he's not like the normal person you know who is upfront and open like a friend would be. Drop the R from friend and you have dropped his mask, you have unmasked him. Virtually everyone that I have talked to has lived with Jekyll and Hyde and you never know who's going to be there from one minute to the next. Literally one minute to the next. I never knew who would be walking in or who I would be going home to. It really didn't matter how well things were going externally. It mostly came from inside. And this interpretation of attitude towards what was happening. One time I was asleep and I was awakened to being carried outside and thrown into the driveway, then locked out of the house. It doesn't matter what you're doing or if you're doing nothing at all. When he wants to dish it out to you, he will. Like I said, he was usually Mr. Nice Guy in public. It did advance, however, to first his family witnessing abuse towards the kids and me, which they considered to be normal, to his closest friends witnessing, and finally to my family witnessing towards the end of our marriage. To keep the front, he would tell certain people how much he loved, adored me, and what a great relationship we had. After our divorce, people couldn't believe what I was telling them about our quote-unquote relationship, we were the perfect family. Others, however, got a different picture of our relationship, one in which I was a total bitch. The thing was, I would never know to whom he told what. 
Frankly, I'm surprised he could keep all the lies straight, and actually I think he didn't worry about it because I heard him speak so contradictingly to so many people and topics that he seemed very undefined. Really crazy, like he himself didn't know what he really believed about just about anything or anybody. I've also heard and read many people saying that their abusers made them feel crazy. I did not relate to this word crazy, nor the term crazy making. I didn't feel crazy, but I certainly thought he was. Perhaps it's my training and the clinical definition of crazy, a true break with reality. I feel I never broke with reality, though perhaps I should rethink this area. If one is brainwashed, as in a prisoner of war camp, has one broken with reality? If so, I did. I was brainwashed, completely. This aspect is amazing for me to look back on. It all happened so slowly that there is no point at which I can say that I was brainwashed. It was a very gradual process that got more thorough and more complete over the years. I know the process was complete, however, though it took several years to get to that point. What was it like to be brainwashed? What did it feel like? What did it taste like? It did not matter what would happen, what anyone would say, what I or anyone else would do, my child, my parent, his sibling or mine, his friends or mine. It did not matter who the anyone else was. My first thought, my first reaction, my first action always centered on him. I remember feeling this and I remember saying this at the time. My first thought before I responded to anyone or anything was, how is he going to see this? Will he approve of my saying this or saying nothing? How would he want me to respond or not respond? Would he be upset if I looked at this person or looked at that person? Would he be angry if I went to buy groceries now or went to the mall alone? The basic theme to his brainwashing was that I was to be home alone or with the children and we were always to be improving the home environment in some way, his environment, physical and mental. He wanted the bills paid without his knowledge or money. Discussing or mentioning any bills was taboo. I learned the hard way. I could never get him to pay one bill and I hurt my credit trying to do so. So I finally stopped bothering him about the bills and money. He never made a house payment. He never made a newspaper payment. But I would have hell to pay if the newspaper bill or any other bill was unpaid. Bills were totally up to me, and they'd better be taken care of. He claimed that he just couldn't do it. He had tried. I'm sorry. He exclaimed. At this writing, I may be coming across as bitter or mean, but I do not feel bitter, and I do not mean to be, as he would say, quote-unquote, bad-mouthing him. I am simply trying to relate my story as facts so that the reader will hopefully have a deeper understanding of what verbal abuse looks like and tastes like. I understand that most women are abused financially in a different way. At least that is what the literature reflects to date. The abuser is usually the one controlling the money. He pays all the bills, controls all the money, and she has little knowledge of their financial status, is simply given an allowance for groceries, etc., I intend to conduct a qualitative study interviewing women like myself who are financially independent and yet have remained in abusive relationships. I believe that there are many women who actually fit this description. We just haven't heard much from them. Financial abuse then can take several shapes, all equally abusive, and whose end is the same, control and an effort to make her more dependent on him. If he squanders and loses and gets rid of her money, then she will be more dependent on him. What does verbal abuse look like? How can I best help you to understand it? 
If I think in terms of sight, for the viewpoint of the person abused, abused, it looks very dark, like living with a black veil always covering your face. Sometimes you change the veil, like changing clothes, for various functions, dressing very subdued for certain occasions, and more frivolous at other times. The weave of the veil may tighten or loosen, depending always on the desires of the abuser. Sometimes you're allowed to be lighter, a bit happier, but at other times, an attitude of happiness on your part may be dampened or squelched by the abuser on a whim. Your happiness may be countered with a piercing shot or glare that has the capacity to put fear into your soul. There doesn't have to be any reason that you know of. If he doesn't want you to be happy, you'd better not act happy. The reverse is also true. If you are truly upset or worried about something and he doesn't want you to be, you'd better act like all is good with the world. This is how I became more and more distanced from my true self, my spirit. What I felt I may be told not to feel, so that I eventually came not to trust my own feelings. And it was really safer to feel nothing at all. In parentheses, deadening the spirit. I was told what to feel, what I should feel, and I was intermittently rewarded for cooperating. Parentheses, absence of punishment. As I was punished for continuing to feel as I truly did. The thing is, he seemed to know how I felt despite my efforts to cover my feelings, which I would try to do so as to avoid punishment or delay punishment. And by delaying punishment, I mean that he would not explode just then. If I would understand that he wanted me to be happy just then and I could successfully convey being happy, I would affirm his desire for me to be happy and then appease him. I, however, was unsuccessful in conveying happiness. He may initiate a verbal attack on me or the children, depending on how deeply he cared to wound me, how much punishment he deemed I deserved. So as to be more successful at being in whatever mood he wanted me to be in, I would try to actually change my mood to fit his whims. This is where he gained control of my feelings. I was told how to feel, thus my focus of control for feelings deemed more and more externalized, and I became less and less in touch with my true spirit. Parentheses, deadening of the spirit. So what does verbal abuse look like? As I said, it takes the form of viewing life through a black veil with various weaves. Sometimes the view is darker, sometimes the view is lighter, but the view is always out of focus, lacking any clear, sharp perspective. I think this blurred focus also comes from distancing oneself from one's true spirit, never having a tight hold on one's feelings, lest the need arise too quickly, alter those feelings to appease the fiend. I suppose I began to trust my feelings and thoughts less. The line between what I truly felt and what I was supposed to feel became blurred. It didn't really matter that much what I truly felt anyway, as those feelings could surely serve to get me in trouble. So why feel it all? A numbness seemed to come over me. Toward the end of my marriage, I remember others would cry for me, but I couldn't feel it myself. Life was better that way. As I mentioned, my thoughts were also a potential source of punishment, something to be attacked. I was told what I thought and why I thought that. Of course, what he told me I was thinking, what I actually was thinking, usually are in direct conflict. 
Disagreement, however, and trying to explain only intensified the abusive accusations, so I became more passive and accepted his telling me what I thought of or at least didn't fight it so much. It really became a pick-your-battles attitude with me. Was what I really thought worth fighting about? Combined with all the other little battles and the fact that he would take it out on the kids if I upset him, I decided that less and less of what I thought was worth it. I think the less I defended my thoughts outwardly, the less I began to process the conflicting information mentally, and I actually began just accepting what he told me about me without defending myself. I think I actually began believing what he told me, I thought. I was just so worn out that it became easier and easier for him to control my thoughts and feelings. Isn't that what brainwashing is? Thought control? So that describes the slow process over several years by which I was brainwashed and by which I actually allowed myself to be put increasingly under his control. Several other methods solidified the control of my spirit. This reading so far, it's been important to digest the pain and confusion that is clear in my mother's words here. This is her at the beginning of writing her story, just five months after the divorce has been final. And she may mention it later, but it did take over two years for her divorce to be finalized. And those two years were the worst for me personally. The sound of defeat in her writing, but also the ambitious hope she has in healing and helping others is so true to the mother I knew and admired. 